בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, great to be here in Aventura, Florida, at the Breslov Center, ברוך השם, we're going to continue our series, uh, we are uh, continuing the Mishnah in Perkei Avot, uh, this is actually going to be the second Mishnah in the uh, chapter 6 of uh, Perkei Avot, Bezad uh, Hashem, it's a uh, completely new Mishnah, beautiful Mishnah, most likely again will also be several shiurim to complete this Mishnah as well. Um, I had a lot of fun studying for this Mishnah, and uh, it's actually also something that a lot of people are going to like to hear about, because I know people love to talk about Mashiach. People love to talk about Mashiach, you know, and uh, uh, this Mishnah has a little bit to do with it as well. This has uh, a lot to do with it, actually. Uh, so we'll talk about it. Uh, we'll talk about some of the things that are continuing to go on in the world. Unfortunately, the Choban that uh, has happened over the last couple of weeks with uh, this uh, misinterpretation of Alakha by many well-known rabbis, um, a lot of confused people, and uh, we'll try to bring some more clarity to the issues. If you guys have any specific, uh, you know, related questions, please ask along the way. If it's not related, then obviously after the shiul, we'll have the uh, typical um, questions and answer session. Uh, this year will also uh, continue to be for Refua Shlema for my dear friend Rav Chaim uh, and uh, also uh, Rav uh, Ephraim uh, Ben Shulamit, um, um, Rabbanit Sarabat uh, Anat, Yochevet uh, Bat Batya, Levana Bat Sara, Sarabat Levana. David Ben Joa, Doris, but David Ben Nesria, David Ben Nesria, Doris Ben Jora, Dvora Ben Mercedes, Elisheva Chaya Ben Sarah, and who else am I forgetting? And all of our Mishraelis of the Shem will have a refuah shlema, refuah ha-nefesh, and refuah ha-guf. The Mishnah in Avot, in the weekly parasha, parashat toldot, always, besiyat dishmaya, connect to our life at that very moment. The Chafetz uh, Chaim once said, you know, people are willing to pay endless amount of money to find answers during very difficult times. What they should do during a business deal, to go, not to go, to buy, to sell, what they should do with their marriage, what they should do with their divorce, what they should do with their children. A lot of things, a lot of big decisions in life. It seems like if you don't pay attention, you're bound to make the wrong decision. But life is... One decision after another, and each decision could be the one that changes your life. And people would come to the Chachamim throughout all of the generations and ask them, for, ask them questions about their life decisions. This is one of the important things that a Chacham needs to do for, for, for his people, is to give them guidance. Now why do they go to the Chacham instead of simply answering things on their own. Number one, the Chacham sees things from a different perspective. 
It's much easier to see things from an outside perspective than from inside because the emotions that the person has when he's dealing with something usually steer their decision in the wrong direction. You know, sometimes when a woman wants to make a decision in regards to one of our children or a husband or something relating to some emotional issue that she may have, it's almost 100% of the time that she's bound to make a mistake simply because her emotions are going to lead her decision-making, and usually the emotions are wrong. If a guy is very upset, you can even say angry, it's practically guaranteed that he'll make the wrong decision in anything that he does. Even things as simple as what to eat. Even things as simple as where to go. Even things as simple as whether to pick up the phone or not. Once a person is angry, he has no control. No control and the Yetzirah will always steer him in the wrong direction. So when somebody, you ask somebody from an outside perspective, they don't have this emotional involvement with, with what's happening. So already that makes the likelihood of the uh, decision to be much better, much clearer, much more likely to succeed. But even more important than that is that a typical person, whether it be a psychiatrist or a friend or a parent or some type of colleague that you ask for advice, is simply going to give you their opinion from their perspective. Meaning, they're telling you what they would do if they were you. They're not telling you advice based on what they would do if they were themselves. They're not telling you advice as if they're putting uh, you know, their, your perspective first. Meaning, the way that a typical person will give you advice is that he's going to look at things just from their own perspective, just from their own life, as if they were in a, you know, not really thinking about all the consequences, not necessarily thinking about what you like and what you don't like, what's going to benefit you in the long run, what's going to hurt you in the long run. They simply look at things based on themselves and their own ego. So if you ask your girlfriend for advice about what to do with the shidduch or with your husband that really made you upset today because he did such and such, more times than not, your girlfriend is going to tell you to break up. More times than not, your girlfriend is going to tell you you should leave him, you're better than him. You should be happy that you even looked at him. And more times than not, she's going to give you the wrong advice. She's not going to tell you to work things out. And the reason why is because she has no emotional attachment to this person. And in fact, any emotional attachment she has is usually a negative one because of our perspective. If you, ask, if you ask your guy friends what you should do with this relationship that you're in, most of them are going to tell you, yeah, I think you, get, I think you can do better. I think you can do better. They're not thinking about, oh, but how do you know? Oh, but this is better. Oh, but he loves her. Oh, but she's good to him. Oh, but a lot of other things. They don't think about stuff like that. I had one time a student tell me that his so-called best friend 
the so-called best friend, was trying to give him advice a week before his wedding. Very valuable and important advice. He told him, you have to come to my house, I got to talk to you. So he comes to his house a week before the wedding, thinking that his friend is going to give him some marriage advice. After all, he's religious. He thinks his friend is going to give him some guidance of what to do on the wedding day. This advice of maybe how to start a house, uh, you know, what to do. And to his surprise, his friend tells him, listen, I thought about it. I thought about it a lot, he tells him. And I don't think you should get married. I think you could do better. I think you could find a better wife. Maybe better looking than her. This was the advice of a person to his best friend a week before the wedding. The selfishness that people have, unfortunately, has no limits. So the reason why people go to Chachamim is because if they are true Chacham, as we talked about in the previous Mishnah, in order for them to be qualified to give advice, Rav Wasam and Allah Shalom says, rule number one, they must remove all their feelings and have no bias whatsoever of one way or the other. Rule number one, if there's a bias, if they're called nagua in Hebrew, meaning that they benefit or lose in one or the other decision, automatically it disqualifies them from being a person that can give you advice. So now, the people that go to the Chachamim are going to ask him to not be biased, obviously, but then there's something further. What is that? Is the fact that they're not going to give you their opinion. If they're a real Chacham, they're not going to give you their opinion. They're going to give you God's opinion. As Rav Tovia Singer always says, Sheikhye always says in his Shurim, my opinion, your opinion, who cares about our opinions? What's God's opinion? What's God's opinion? You ask for advice, you have to find out what's God's opinion. How do we know what God's opinion is? He wrote it in the Torah. He wrote it in the Torah. And those that delve into his Torah over a lifetime can find even the hidden message within the message or even the obvious message within the message, the deeper message. And they call that the oral Torah. Without it, without this oral Torah, even the basic level of Hashem's opinion would not be understood. In this week's parasha, parasha Toldot, it says something very interesting. The parasha starts by saying, Ve'ele toldot Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham olid et Yitzchak. These are the offspring of Yitzchak, the son of Avraham. Avraham begat Yitzchak. Now, Rav Ephraim asks, the last we checked, Hashem was very, very careful 
with the amount of ink he spent writing the Torah. Meaning he didn't write one extra letter. Not an extra paragraph, not an extra sentence, and literally not even an extra yud, which is slightly bigger than a dot. There's not a single extra letter, but yet you see in the first verse of this holy parashat toldot, that Hashem repeats the same thing. Not only does he repeat Avram's name twice, but he says the same thing twice in one sentence. These are the offspring of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. Avram begat Yitzchak, meaning that Yitzchak is the son of Avram, and Avram, his son is Yitzchak. But you already said it. You said that Yitzchak is the son of Avram. If Yitzchak is the son of Avram, what does it mean? If Yitzchak is the son of Avram, what does it literally mean? That Avram is the father of Yitzchak. So why do you have to tell me the same thing twice, nonetheless in the same exact sentence? If you said it a paragraph later, three paragraphs later, at the end of the parasha, at the end of the book, in a different book, then I understand, maybe I forgot. I don't have such a good memory. So maybe I forgot, so Hashem's reminding me of things that He knows I'm going to forget because He knows everything. But here you're telling me the same thing, not only the same thing, it's literally glued together. Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham olinet Yitzchak. Meaning, you read, if you read the, the, the parasha, it's Avraham, Avraham. The word Avraham appears twice in a row. You could have even said, let's say if you wanted to emphasize that Yitzchak is the son of Avraham, you could have said, Yitzchak ben Avraham, Sholidit Yitzchak, meaning you still could have erased at least one Avraham. The Chachamim answer with a Midrash. In the previous parasha, we heard of a story that Avraham, before having Yitzchak, was caught by Avimelech, who believed that uh, Sarai Menu was uh, his sister. And as we all know the story, clearly from last week, Avimelech comes to Avraham, and he says to him, why did you do this to me? You know, God punished Avimelech. He wasn't, all of the holes in his body were shut, whether it be his eyes or the ones that allow him to go to the bathroom. All of the women that were pregnant and were supposed to give birth were not able to give birth. His entire people were punished severely in a clear way that they know something's wrong. It's not like a rumor. And then Hashem comes to him in a dream and says to him, you made a very, very serious mistake messing with Avram. He's a prophet. You better let him go or I'm going to kill you. And even after you let him go, you should know he's a prophet, so ask for him to pray for you. So he forgives you, because that's the only way I'll heal you anyway. Not only do you have to release him, 
But you have to ask for his forgiveness to such an extent that he's going to pray for you. And this is exactly what happens. Now after this, they go into business together. And shortly later, Avraham has the whole experience where he sees the angels, the angels come, they tell him you're going to have a son, or actually even before this, the, the, the promise that the angels made, or that Hashem made, comes to fruition shortly after this experience. And we see that he has Yitzchak. Now, Chamim say that at that moment, all of the jokesters, all of the funny people, all of the people that like to make fun and like to make a joke of people, all of the people that like to make comments on the internet or insult you personally, even though they don't even know you, all of those people, they said, you know what? Avram, he must be a really holy person. Let's just destroy him. What do they do? He said, listen, this Avram, all he does is work for Hashem. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with that. What are we going to do? Let's find something on him. Oh, in business, he's honest. In uh, this, he's honest. In this, he's good. In this, he's good. Everything he does is good. What can we find on him? Oh, look at that. He just had a kid. He just had a kid. His wife's 90 years old. Who has a kid at 90 years old? Where does this kid come from? Ah, Avimelech. Avimelech is really the father of the kid. Avimelech is the father of the kid. Why? Because Avram already tried for uh, 70 years. 80 years he's been trying with Sarai. It didn't work. So now you're telling me finally it works as a miracle. It's coming from Avram. No way. Avimelech is the father. Meaning they said Yitzchak is a mamzech. Has And Hashem, who knows what's in our minds, who knows what's in our filthy hearts at times, protected the honor of Avraham by making sure that everybody knew that Yitzchak is his son. How? He says that not only was Yitzchak his son, but it actually looked like that Avraham actually gave birth to Yitzchak literally because Hashem changed Yitzchak's face to look exactly like Avraham. Meaning you couldn't mistake that he was his son. They were copies. It's the same person. You couldn't say it's Avimelech's kid or anybody's kid. You could barely tell he was related to Sarah because he looked so much like Avraham. It was identical. So everybody says, oh yeah, Avram gave birth to this kid. Not even Sarah, Avram, Avram. This is it's a copy. Even when he grew up as a teenager, people would come up to Yitzhak, says, listen, uh, the business deal we did, he goes, no, I'm sorry, you're talking about my father. It's not me. It's not me. Avram, my father, he's in the kollel, he's learning, go, go talk to him. He goes, no, no, come on, stop playing. No, no, Bemet, it's my father. They wouldn't believe him. Because they look identical. Why? To protect Avraham's honor. We already learned from here 
that the jokesters, unfortunately, they've had a place in the world from day one. The people that like to make fun, the people that like to make a joke of things, the people that like to start websites just for the purpose of making a mockery of things, they didn't invent anything. They're nothing new. They've already been alive and well for a long, long time. In the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara, Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkino says, the rabbi of Rabbi Akiva, he says, the people that joke around, the people that like to make jokes, the beginning is suffering, and the end is disaster. Meaning that the punishment for those that like to make jokes is so horrific, he says that the lower, the smallest part of their suffer, of their of their punishment is complete suffering in this world. That's the beginning. It's suffering. He says the end is complete annihilation from the world. No olamaba. Why you like you like to make jokes? Kalvachoma, you make a joke of somebody that's trying to bring Hashem's kids to the world and brings Hashem's kids back to him. But sometimes Rabotai. You don't. You can't tell the difference. Who's a tzaddik? Who's a rasha? Sometimes they both look like they're the sons of Avram. Parasha talks about that too. Says Vayater Yitzchak laAdonai lenochach ishto ki akarai vayater lo Adonai vataref ka ishto vayitrotetzu abanim bekirba vatomer imken lama ze anochi vatelch lidrosh et Adonai. ויאמר אדוני לה שני גויים בביתנך ושני לאומים מעייך יפרדו לאום מלאום יאמץ ורב יעבוד צעיר וימלאו ימיה ללדת והנה תומים בביתנה ויצא הראשון אדמוני כולו ועד כאדרת שיער ויקראו שמו עשיו Already from the beginning we see this parasha starts to tell us about what's happening in the life of רבקה and Yitzchak, and says that in the beginning, Rivka was also not able to give birth, just like Sarai Menu. Just like Sarai Menu. But then. Hashem allowed himself to be entreated by him, meaning Hashem heard the prayer of Yitzchak and Rivka conceived. Meaning another miracle happened. Chachamim ask, why did Hashem hear the prayers of Yitzchak? Why didn't he hear the prayers of Rivka? Usually the tears of, of a woman open every single gate in heaven. It says, Vayater lo Hashem. Yater lo, meaning he heard his prayer. Hashem heard his prayer, not ours. Why do you hear his prayers, Yitzhak's prayers? Why not uh, Rivka? Because if Rivka sought through a prophecy that one of our sons could be no good. Why? Because the Gemara in Baba Batra says that the sons of a woman will look like her brother. 
the sons of a woman will look like her brother, both in physical looks and also in character. Some of the Chachamim say this is no longer relevant, but there's still something to learn, meaning that if you want to know at least somewhat of an idea of what your, how your sons, what kind of midot your sons are going to have, spend some time with her brothers. If our brothers are gangsters, it's not usually a great thing. But the Chachamim say this is no longer relevant, and the reason why is because in those days, nature was different, Hashem ran the world slightly differently, and more importantly, today, people usually don't live next to each other like they did back then. But either way, Rivka was very scared of this. Why? Her brother was literally partners in a tum'ah of the world. He wasn't like a regular person that just robbed banks. He wasn't like a regular person that killed a couple of people on the side for the mafia. No, no, he wasn't like a regular criminal. He was mama's koacha tum'ah himself. She says, if my son is even somewhat connected to him, Somewhat connected to Lavan Arami, Hashem Yirachim. But Yitzchak continued praying. Why? He says, it's not our business. It's not our business to run the world. Our business is to do. When Chizkiyahu HaMelech saw through prophecy that he's going to have a son, it's no good. He decided, I'm not going to get married. The prophet Ishaya came to him, he says, tomorrow you're going to die. Because me, I'm going to die. I made all of Am Yisrael do tshuva. Even the little babies knew the entire Mishnah by heart. Why is Hashem killing me? He says, because you violated the law. What law? What law did I violate? Everybody's learned Torah all day, all night. No one works anymore. Everybody just learns Torah. Everybody learns Torah. The whole nation is learning Torah. The Gemara says, if the Mashiach was going to come, Hashem decides it's going to be Chizkiyahu. Hashem actually decided, I'm going to make Chizkiyahu the Mashiach, until he made a mistake. He decided not to get married. So Hashem says, kill him. Not only is not Mashiach, kill him now. Hashem judgment, strict, with the Tzadikim. Chizkiyahu says, yeah, but uh, Hashem gave me Ruach HaKodesh. Hashem gave me prophecy. Hashem gave me all these gifts. I used them. I saw the future. I saw I'm gonna, if I get married, I'm going to have a kid. Kid's going to be Rasha Merusha. He's going to be Esav. He's going to be uh, Amalek. He's going to be. He's going to be Rasha. Why would I want a son that's going to be an idol worshiper? Go against Hashem that I'm worshiping all day. The prophet Shaya says, it's none of your business. It's none of your business how Hashem runs the world. You are obligated to fulfill a mitzvah of poor book. He didn't give you prophecy, so you look into the future and start changing things. You have to fulfill a mitzvah. How Hashem runs the world is none of your business. This also is slightly a nice chidush for those that ask the common question, about the horrific sin of wasting seed, where they say, listen, sometimes there are certain women that are barren, like Rivka and Sarah. 
or perhaps they got old and they cannot have children anymore. So how is it that if they know for sure that they literally physically cannot give birth, some have removed their ovaries, some were never able to, all types of things, some have just gotten old, typical situation, people get older, they can't have kids. So how is it that when they're intimate with their husbands, that that's not wasting seed? It's a good question. Because you know the seed's not going to reproduce. For sure. I mean, unless you're a Sarai Menu. Unless you're Rivka. So how is it not wasting seed? Because Rabotai, we are responsible to do. We are responsible to fulfill mitzvot. The outcome is none of our business. Every single man is responsible to fulfill the mitzvot, to be with his wife, especially on the day of the mikveh. He must even cancel his shiur Torah, if he has to, if he has, if that's the night of the mikveh. It's so important to be careful with this mitzvah of purbu. But even when you know it's not going to work. Why? Because your mitzvah is to do. It's not the outcome. The outcome Hashem decides. Whether you're 25 years old and fertile or 85 years old. And you're 30 years after the last time you had something. Why? The outcome to Hashem is the same. Hashem decides that outcome just like He decides that outcome. Chizkiyahu almost died because he made this mistake. But after he found out that this is a mistake, he said to Ishaya, he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, if this is not for me to worry about, this is not for me to be concerned with, then let me marry your daughter. Because <laughs> at least if I marry your daughter, the chances of the, of the children being righteous is higher. Why? I am a tzaddik ben tzaddik. I'm a tzaddik, the son of a tzaddik. And then the wife is going to be the daughter of a tzaddik. Much higher chance that the son, our, our son, is going to be a tzaddik. And they agreed. And they got married. He married his daughter. And he had two sons. And when the two sons were little babies, one of them said, you see Abba's bald spot. It's perfect. He said, one of the little sons said to the other son, you see Abba's bald spot? bald spot. see Abba's bald spot? It's perfect to put a korban for the Avodah Zarah. It's perfect place. Rasha. It's a perfect place to put a korban, a sacrifice, to put Avodah Zarah on it. Chizkiyahu couldn't take it. He killed him on the spot. He killed his own son on the spot. Why? My son! He didn't kill the one that listened. Because he didn't say anything. What's the problem? The one that listened became Menashe. One of the biggest reshaim in the history of Am Yisrael's history, ever. But ended up doing tshuva. He literally made every single sin you could imagine. Avodah Zarah, Gilu'e Arayot, everything you can imagine, he did. 
But the Gemara says, Menashe de Tshuva. Menashe de Tshuva, and he has a share of the world to come. To show us that no matter what we've done in our past, if you're still alive and kicking, you're definitely not worse than Menashe, which means you can do Tshuva too. But now back to Parashat Toldot, we see that Rivka was not praying, but Yitzchak was. Rivka was concerned when she would pass by the place of Abu Dazara. One baby would make noise when she passed by the Bet Midrash. One, the other baby would make noise. She was concerned. Why is one kosher and the other one non-kosher? But once they were born, although they looked differently as far as their skin was different, their hair was different, if you look at the pasuk, in chapter 25, verse 27, it says, The lads, the young men, grew up. Esav became one who knows trapping, a man of the field. But Yaakov was a wholesome man, abiding the tents. Chamim says, why? What does that mean, abiding the tents? Yaakov was in the Bet Midrash learning Torah all day. And Esav was in the streets doing business and otherwise. But there is a very, very interesting limud that the Chachamim tells about the beginning of this Pasuk. It says that most people today, when they give you a picture and they teach little kids about Esav, what do they teach you? They teach you Esav was walking around with a ponytail, tattoos, maybe a biker jacket, a knife hanging off of the side. That's what they, they, the impression they give you. Look at every picture on the internet of Esav, the cartoons that they make. He looks like an outright criminal. He looks like the criminal of all criminals, like he just killed 18 people on the way to the picture. But the Gemara says this is the mistake. Vayigdelu anearim. What does it mean, Vayigdelu anearim? The two young men grew. What does it mean they grew? They were identical. You couldn't tell the difference. He was Shtraimel. He was Shtraimel. He was Chasid. He was Chasid. He had a beard all the way to the floor. He had a beard all the way to the floor. You couldn't tell the difference. The Ba'alea Musar said if Esav came to our generation and he walked to any Bet Midrash in the world, people will start asking for brachot. Rabenu, Rabenu, no, Rabenu, Rabenu, please, please, Gabracha. Because the outside, the way he looked, Kodesh Kodeshim, the way he looked, Sefer Torah. Sefer Torah, this is, Rabenu, give me a kid, please, Rabenu, Bracha, my wife, my kids, it's Taka, you know how, Yaakov and Esav, identical. They looked identical. 
from here we learn, Abutai, that looks can be very, very deceiving. Everyone today has a beard. And if they don't, sometimes they look even like they're wiser. You'll give them an excuse of why they don't have a beard. Oh yeah, he's from Syria. They don't grow facial hair. Oh, he's from Italy. They don't grow facial hair. Oh, he's from uh, this one. And you'll have all types of things. Oh. But the point is that you see people that speak, people that teach. If the guy is a chassid of some kind, automatically the first things people notice is the way he looks. How long his pears are and his beard is and how big his hat is and how long his jacket is. And you see young kids and grown men the same. When you go to Bet Knesset, next time you go to Bet Knesset, go a little early so you don't actually end up wasting any real valuable tefillah time. But go early a few minutes and notice what everyone else is doing before the tefillah and during the tefillah. And you'll see that during the tefillah, whether they're little kids, 10, 12 years old, 13 years old, starting to come to Bet Knesset for the first time in their life, or, or six years old, whatever age there is, or they're older and they're, uh, I don't know, 25, 35, 45, you'll see that everybody's constantly fixing themselves. Surprised there's not like a mirror where the guy starts putting makeup. That's coming soon. That's coming with the next, uh, the next upgrade in the shul. The guys fix themselves 500 times. Who? In front of who? Where are you going? Nine hundred and they're twitching the whole time. I said, "When do you have time to pray? When do you have time to pray?" I went to Beknesa, new Beknesa on Friday. Well, I tried; it just didn't have a minyan, so I ended up going somewhere else. But in the beginning, I saw this little kid, not a day older than thirteen years old, fourteen years old, and the kid literally was there. I was there for maybe 10, 15 minutes, twenty minutes. He must have taking off his jacket and put the jacket back on and then the shirt and fix the shirt at least in 15 minutes, 15 times. But you see this everywhere. Looks. Looks. People are worried about their looks a lot. Now I'm not saying you have to look like you just came out of a garbage pail. You need to look respectable. Stop being a girl. The men of this generation are very, very feminine. And it's quite sickening because that's actually part of the problem of the Shiduch world. You see that the men are more worried and concerned about their looks than the girls and they know more about makeup than the girl does. They know more about clothes than the girl does. Such feminine behavior cannot bring kosher kids to the world. It's a problem. Groomed, no problem. Look good, no problem. But if you're spending as a guy more than two to three minutes in front of the mirror, there's a problem. 
If you're spending 15, 20 minutes doing your hair, it's a problem. If all day you're fixing yourself like a twitch every five minutes, it's a problem. It's a very serious problem. And by the way, it's also unattractive for women. Any woman that's attracted to you is probably not such a good woman. Because it's not normal for a woman to be attracted to another woman. Today, people think that you can base your decisions of as far as how much knowledge a person has and whether they're right or wrong based on their outside appearance. So when they come and they make comments or ask questions like, yeah, but this rabbi, he's a chassid. Okay. And this rabbi, he has this and he has that. The only question you should ask is, does he have the right answer? That's the only question you should ask. Does he have the right answer? Does he have a source for his answer? Or are you basing your entire olam based on his appearance? Somebody asked me recently, I didn't answer because I thought it was a ridiculous question. I try not to answer ridiculous questions. They asked me if a certain rabbi, if I think his beard is real, They actually sent me a question. They said, do you think such and such rabbi's beard is, is real? It's so long. These are the questions people spend their time thinking about. And I have the kaparat of to listen to these things sometimes. But anyway, Rabotai, when we are confused about what's happening in the world, As I told you guys last time, you have to look at the motivation. First and foremost, what's the motivation of the speaker? What's the motivation of the person that's talking? The confusion that we have today about this whole issue with Pittsburgh and the Holocaust and so on, about Kiddush Hashem, Chilul Hashem and so on, people say a lot of things that are inappropriate. And they get emotional. Because the answer they heard is not in accordance to what they like, or heard, or want. But that's where this Mishnah comes in, and it gives us a little bit of a insight of what's happening every day as we prepare for Mashiach. Amar Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, Bekol yom vayom, bat kol yotzet me'ar chorev. ומחרזת ואומרת, אוי להם לבריות מאלבונה של תורה, שכל מי שאינו עוסק בתורה נקרא נזוף, שנאמר, נזם זהב באף חזיר. אישה יפה פסרה טעם, ואומר, והלוחות מעשה אלוהים, אמה והמכתב, מכתב אלוהים הוא חרות על הלוחות. אל תקרא חרות אלא חירות. שאין לך בן חורין, אלא מי שעוסק בתלמוד תורה. וכל מי שעוסק בתלמוד תורה, הרי זה מתעלה, שנאמר, ומתנה נחליאל, ומנחליאל במות. Translation. Second Mishnah in the sixth chapter of Avot starts with 
Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says, every single day, a bat kol, a heavenly voice, emanates from Mount Chorev. What's Mount Chorev? Mount Sinai. And we'll go over why it's called Mount Chorev, or Horeb in English. There's a voice coming out, there's a bat kol, every day. Any of you heard it yet? We'll hear, we'll find out why we don't hear it. Or maybe you did hear it, you're just not paying attention. There's a voice coming out every day. What is this voice saying? Proclaiming and saying, Oy lahim, woe to them, to the people, because of their insult to the Torah. For whoever does not occupy himself with Torah is called Nazuf. In English, they translated Nazuf to rebuked, but it's not really a right translation. It's more like somebody that's on Cherem, on Nidui, is kicked out. Someone that doesn't learn Torah, it's as if Hashem becomes disgusted with him. As it says in Proverbs 11.22, like a golden ring in a swine's snout is a, is a beautiful woman who turns away from good judgment. We'll explain what this proverb means. Obviously, literally, you could see that gold is good, but the pig is disgusting. Just like a woman, a beautiful woman who turns away from good judgment, meaning a beautiful woman, Hashem gave all the gifts in the world, but she uses it to make sins. Hashem made her beautiful. Instead of appreciating this beauty and having her husband enjoy it, she makes sure the whole world enjoys it. She becomes disgusting to the Creator and His creations. As it says in Exodus 32.16, the tablets are God's handiwork. And the script was God's scripts, charut, engraved on the tablets. Do not read the word charut, the word engraved as charut, but rather cherut, meaning freedom. For you can have no freer man than one who is engaged in the study of Torah. And anyone who engages in the study of Torah becomes elevated. As it is said, from Atana to Nachaliel, and from Nachaliel to Bamot. This is in Numbers 21.19, which again, at some point, we'll elaborate when we get to the end of the Mishnah. Today, Be'ezat Hashem, we'll try to cover the first couple of parts of this Mishnah. First and foremost, we need to know who we're dealing with here. As we do in the holy way, we try to make sure that we know who we're dealing with. And even though we've heard Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi's name before,
there's an enormous amount of Torah that came from Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, and it's critical for us to know who we're dealing with. Because if, for example, you have an average Joe giving you a advice for business, average guy, you ask him, "What do you do?" He says, "I have a, uh, I work for UPS. I'm a driver." Okay. So where do you know this business advice you're giving me? He's like, oh, no, I've just been around the block a lot. I see things. I read a lot of books. I want to give you advice. Okay, thank you. Five minutes later, you meet the founder of UPS. And he says, uh, I want to give you advice, business advice. Are you going to treat both of them the same? Obviously not. Why? The driver has a lot of opinions, read a few books. He could very well be smart. But his wisdom was not fulfilled. Why? At the end of it all, he's still an employee of somebody else's company. And he didn't exercise his wisdom or his expertise and knowledge of running a business. Whereas the other one, that founded UPS, built UPS, and has turned UPS into a $200 billion company, ah, that guy, I want to hear. I want to hear what he has to say. Why? He has some serious experience that's valuable. He also has success and failures I can learn from. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi is one of the special people that we had in Am Yisrael that was at such a high level that he's one of the ten people that never died. His Chavuta he had two good friends. Two good friends. One of them was Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi, Zachul Etov, Hashem turned him into an angel. He never died. You read when he was... Uh, Walking with his protege, Elisha Navi, Hashem sent a chariot and a wind to, and took Eliyahu Navi as he is, with his clothes on to Shemaim. He never died. No burial, no nothing. Why? Because he has, the prophet says, he has to come back three days before Mashiach comes to announce to us, Rabotai, Mashiach is coming. Mashiach is coming. But then I learned a chidush today from the Marsha. The Marsha, it's Kodesh Kodeshim. You can't learn a page in Gemara without the Marsha. Marsha had long hair. But now he wasn't a rock star. He wasn't doing it for looks. Why do you have long hair? Because he would take his long hair and he would tie it to the wall. Because he didn't want to go to sleep because he wanted to learn Torah. So he would put his legs in cold freezing water to keep himself up. But just in case the cold freezing water is not enough because sometimes you're really tired. And even the cold freezing water is not enough. You should try it. Even the cold freezing water is not enough. Your legs are already numb. 
It's not enough the cold freezing water. Your face still falls on a desk. So what happens? You fall asleep. Ah, I have an idea. says. What? I'm going to grow long hair. To what? To tie it to the wall. Because as soon as my head falls just a little bit, ooh, wow, how much is going to hurt? And then you wake up, you're like, it's a good morning. Good morning. How are you? Kukuriku. You're waking up the, the, the turkey, the chicken, the, everybody else you're waking up. Why? How much pain you have? Your hair is pulled. Hashem Yachem. That's how much you want to learn Torah. That's how much you want to learn Torah, Rabbi The Marsha says, we say, Mashiach can come every day. Mama, she come every day. You look at Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin, it says Mashiach can come any day. How could it be that Mashiach can come any day? But the Prophet says that Eliyahu Navi needs to come three days before. So technically he can't come every day. He can come in three days from now. After Eliyahu Navi. He says no. Marsha gives a chidush. He says, if, if the, the, the Mashiach comes, if the Mashiach comes at the predestined time, Shem decides, listen, everyone's tzaddikim, everybody did tshuva. Or, unfortunately, everybody's ashaim. I'm going to force you to do tshuva, which we'll talk about later today. What does it mean, forced to do tshuva and so on? If it comes at a predestined time, then Hashem's going to send the, Mash- the Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi says, hello, hello, hello. Mashiach's coming in three days. But if it comes as a surprise, then Mashiach and Eliyahu Navi come at the same time. They come together. That's why the Mashiach can arrive every day with Eliyahu Navi. So now, one of his chavutot, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, was Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi introduced him to a lot of people. He introduced him to the Mashiach of his generation. It says in Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin. says, where's Mashiach? When is he going to come? He goes, go ask him yourself. He goes, where is he? He goes, he's in the gate of Rome. And he goes to meet him. We'll talk about it in a second. Eliyahu Navi says to Rabbi Yoshua ben Navi, says, do you have any interest in seeing what Gainom looks like? He says, yeah, sure. He goes, come, I'll show you. Come, I'll show you. You know that entire show we made about Gainom? Where's the source? The vast majority of it is Rabbi Yoshua ben Navi. If you remember, if you go tune into that shiur again, if you want to get scared again to give a little bit more Yirat Shamayim, you hear in the beginning of the shiur where it says, Rabbi Yoshua ben Navi met with Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi says to him, you want to go see what Gainom looks like? And he says, yes, take me. And Rabbi Yoshua ben Navi says, I went there and I saw Hashem Yirachim, what he saw. So a lot of what information that we know about both Mashiach and Genom, we know from Rabbi Yeshua ben Nabi. But also he had another friend. Who? The Malach Malachamavit Malach was also his friend. 
Why? How could a Malach be a friend of a tzaddik? Because Malach loves tzaddikim. At the end of the day, the Yetzirah, the Malach the Satan, all three the same thing, is an Eved Hashem. He's a servant of Hashem. Hashem put him in the world. People think that Hashem is going to kill him. Once the Mashiach comes, that would be wrong. Why would it be wrong? Because you made him do the job. You told him to go make people sin, give them obstacles. Are you going to kill him for it? No. That's not justice. Hashem is all they meant, all justice. How can it be? Chamim explained, he's not going to kill him physically. But he's going to relieve him of his role. You no longer need to be the Malach Hamavit. You no longer need to be Yetzirah. He's going to remove that role from him. You will now become good angel. That's it. Since Rabbi Yashua ben Levi was at the time of the Gemara, which was right after the Mishnah, he is one of the giants that connected the sages of the Gemara to the sages, to the period of the Mishnah. But his Divrei Torah had a special level of significance when it comes to Alakha. Now all of you have heard the name Rabbi Yochanan. The Gemara says, if Rabbi Yochanan has a machloket with the rabbis, you go in the Gemara, you go back and forth, Rabbi Yochanan says such and such. The Chachamim say such and such. Alakha, Rabbi Yochanan. Alakha, if there's a machloket between Chachamim, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan is greater than the Chachamim of that time. But what if there's a machloket between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Alakha ke Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Alakha ke Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Such is the greatness of who we're dealing with here. The Chazonish, Allah Shalom, says people that learn Torah people that are privileged to know Torah, meaning that they live it. Not that they just learn it in school in order to pass a test so they can get a basketball as a gift from Abba and Ima and really do what they really want to do. Pretend to be LeBron James, only three feet shorter. People that learn Torah and live Torah, not just because they like to make YouTube videos. People learn Torah because they want to live it. The Chazonish say, they walk around and they look like ordinary men. You couldn't tell the difference. Someone that possesses this Torah, a real person, they walk around like regular men, ordinary people. But in reality, 
They're more similar to being angels than they are men. They look the same like everybody else. Head, shoulders, knees, toes, everything else. But if they live the Torah that they learn, they're angels. They're not regular people. It's angels dwelling among mortal men. This is in the collected letters of the Chazonish, first chapter, 13th letter. Yoshua ben Levi was a constant representative of Am Yisrael in a time of danger when it would have to deal with the Roman authorities, Imachimam. But even the Roman authorities, even the Caesars, feared and respected him to such an extent that when him and Rabbi Chana ben Chama went to the Caesar, the Roman governor stood up when the two Jews came in, even though it made everybody upset, these Jews, you're standing up for them? It's not like some king. It's Jews. The Roman governor says, angels. Angels. Even the guy could tell. He's angels. Angels. What do you think? You learned Gemara? We think he got Musar? No. They're, the Kedusha of a person eventually has a physical impact on him. The Kedusha of a person has an effect on him. Arabi again, Allah Shalom, asks a very, very serious question. He says, out of all of the different Dmuyot, all of the different images, that Hashem could have picked to put on top, on top of the Aruna Kodesh. What did he pick? The two cherubim, the two cherubs, let's call it thing in English. What did he pick? Two babies. Two babies. Why did he pick a baby? Why did he pick Moshe Rabbeinu, Avram Avinu, Yaron Uven maybe, I wouldn't mind. Why did he, why did he pick two little babies? Why two babies? The best thing a baby can do is open his mouth. All he does is open his mouth all day. Everything he puts in his mouth. Everything he puts in his mouth. Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't think about it. Nothing. Everything he puts in his mouth. He wants to have a taste of everything. Even if it's not edible. Today, Shiebari, he climbed the, he moved the couch, moved my whole furniture. I said I shouldn't have hired a movie company. He moved the whole furniture, climbed the thing on top of the sink and almost took down an entire hot water canister. I said to my wife, if Wall Street, the financial crash, the health crisis, the, the chaos that we had, if everything else didn't age us, this will. This little baby. Cutest thing in the world. But the best, the little kid, what's the kid going to do? He opens his mouth. But why is he open his mouth, the little kid? Why does the little baby open his mouth? Because he constantly wants to learn. The beauty of a baby is because he constantly wants to learn from everything. He wants to learn, how does this taste? He wants to learn, why are you saying this? 
He wants to learn what's inside this. He wants to learn what happens when I jump from this. He wants to learn constantly. And Hashem wanted to give us a symbolic sign of what can you be, what can you do, if to, what can you actually do to be Kadosh. Like the Aron HaKodesh holds the holiest of holy. How can I be the holy thing? Be like the baby. Be like the baby. Learn from everything. But don't climb my kitchen. Learn from everything. Don't be one of these people that stop somebody else when they start talking. Say, no, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. Like one of these people I know, Mr. I know everything. Don't be one of those people. In fact, it's against derech eretz. It's against good midot to interrupt another person that's telling you a story, even if you know the story. Somebody's about to tell you. Some people like to tell stories 87 times just to make sure you know it. And after you know it, they're going to tell you a different version of the same story another 87 times. Some people are like that. They like to do it. Sometimes they don't even know that they're telling you the story 87 times. By the time you finish the story, you, okay, oh, you can tell them the story back. It's like, oh, wow, you heard you were there? No, no I wasn't there. I just heard it 87 times. Stop boxing off. And even if you tell them, I know, they still tell you the story. No, 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 but you never, I don't think I told you this part. I don't think I told you this part. No, no, you were here two days ago. You told me the story. No, no, I don't think I told you this part. They they tell you the story again. Some people love to tell the same story. But you want to, you know why Hashem is sending it to you? Aside from the fact that we all have sins, we need kapat avonot, it's also because Hashem is trying to give you some practice, how to work on your midot, how to work on your patience, how to work on your derech eretz. You're forbidden from interrupting their story, even if you know the story. They're about to tell you Dvar Torah. You heard the Dvar Torah? Don't tell me you know it. Don't tell me you know it. Now, many times this happens with little kids. Little kids, they love to talk. Sometimes they have nothing to say, so they just make up stuff. And they'll repeat the same thing. Oh, he did this, he did this. Oh, I told you already. Okay. He did this, he did this. Oh, he told me five seconds ago. He told me again. Oh, and they repeat the same thing 500 times. And after they get out of the chova of saying 500 times, part two, another 500. When it comes to Torah Rabotai, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi teaches us about that too. What did he say? Rabbi Yosho ben Levi took Torah so seriously, he made sure to teach Torah to his kids and grandkids. To his kids and grandkids. The Gemara, in Masechet Kiddushin, page 38, says that he used to hear his grandkids give him a Dvar Torah every Friday. Every Friday would give him a Dvar Torah. But one Friday he forgot. One Friday he forgot, but he only remembered after he got into the bathhouse, like the mikveh of that day. But he realized as he's, as he's there, he didn't go into the mikveh, he put on his robe and started running home. Started running home to not miss the little kids, little five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids, now of course, the Chachamim, they had students, they're also running. He's running, we're running. And they all chase him, 
They say, they're thinking maybe he's going to go meet Eliyahu Navi. Maybe he's going to meet Malach HaMavit. Maybe he's going to meet Mashiach. Uh, the Gdol Ador is running in the streets like something just happened. He's not telling him, listen, I got to go. He's just running. They're all running after him. Eventually he says, oh, get to the house. He gets to the table. They're all sitting. They're like, oh, Eliyahu Navi is just about to come. Mashiach is just about to come. Malach HaMavit coming. Somebody's coming. You see, little five and a half year old little boy. Hi, Saba. Hi. You ready for Dvar Torah? Students are looking at themselves like, he's Mashiach. <laughs> he's Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi is kind of young. Five years old. And they hear and they see Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi start learning Chavuta with a five-year-old. After they finished, they say, Kvod Rav, we have to ask you, Lamdeni, teach us. Why are you so, like, take this so seriously where you missed the mikveh, you didn't even take a bath before Shabbat, you know, you ran, you, I mean, it's five years old at the end of the day, I mean, okay, you like to do it, it's nice to do it, but isn't it a little too serious? Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says to them, Achidush, that if every parent knew this, their children will never leave the derech. If every single parent did this, their children will never leave the derech. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says to them, Abutai, when that little five-year-old learns Torah with me, when he sees his grandpa teaching him Torah, taking his Dvar Torah seriously, and then teaching him back, and going back and forth, and I'm hearing his idea, and I appreciate his idea, and then he appreciates my idea, for him, it's like Mount Sinai itself. For the little boy, it's Mount Sinai. You want me to take that away from him because of some mikveh? Because I'm busy? Because I happen to be a big rabbi? If our parents would spend some more time with the kids, to not only listen to their Dvar Torah on Shabbat. A lot of parents do this. They have the kid prepare a Dvar Torah you see the kid prepare Dvar Torah. One of the parents listens. The other parent is busy talking to some guests. They say, Kol kavod, even if it doesn't make any sense. And they can't wait for him to finish. That's all nice. But that's not what's going to keep him interested. What's going to keep, keep the five-year-old interested at six? And the six-year-old interested at eight? And the eight-year-old interested at twelve? And the 12-year-old interested at 18. And the 18 interested for the rest of his life. Is if you spend some time with him, learning with him, learn with him. Don't just listen to whatever he learned in school. Sit, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever time allows. Once a week. Once a day. Depends. 
learn with them. But Be'emet learn with them. One of the most pleasant experiences I had, probably ever, with a kid, was today. Where I saw what's the difference between a kid that has a brain of Torah versus the typical kids that I've seen my whole life. Now, I didn't grow up around Torah. And quite frankly, even though I know a lot of kids and I've seen a lot of religious kids in my life, I haven't seen something like this before. One of my conversations with Rabbi Ephraim is... Uh, Wife's brother came on the call. He says, I want to ask you a question to me. I thought, okay, he's 12 years old. What kind of questions he could possibly ask? Where did God come from? Dinosaurs. Some philosophical questions that 12-year-olds ask. And the kid asks me a sugiya, asks me a question, not an easy one. Shtabach Shemoy had the answer. But he asks me a question from the Gemara in Baba Kama. And I saw when I was giving him the answer with different sources, for him, it was like heaven. He was enjoying this, like this is wow. And I'm thinking to myself, this is what your 12-year-old kid, this is what you're thinking about? You're not thinking about basketball and Michael Jordan and football and Emmett Smith and this one and baseball and, and, and the Mets and this one, and the stock market, and Bitcoin. And you're not thinking about that stuff, kid? That's what I'm thinking in my head. You're thinking about some sugiya, some question you have from the Gemara at Baba Kama. You're 12 years old. At 12 years old, I didn't know what Gemara is. And to be honest with you, many of the kids that I know from American religious schools don't know what Gemara is at 12 years old. Other than it's homework. It's homework. That's what Gemara is. What's Gemara? It's homework. This wasn't homework. He didn't ask me the question because it was homework. He had a question about this ma. Why is this so pleasing to me? Because the same kid, they wanted to throw him out of yeshiva two months ago. They said, he's not a good student. And we don't have any time to invest in him. So you have to send him to a different yeshiva. So Rav Ephraim said, I'll teach him. Just keep him in a school. Give us another chance. Give us another chance. I'll take responsibility. I'll teach him. I'll work with him. I'll do homework with him. He already has. His own kids. I know a few things. 
I'll teach him. Rabbi said, oh, if you're going to help him, tutor him, okay. We don't have anybody here. We have 400 kids. We can't invest that much time into every kid. But if you're going to do it, we'll keep him. We'll give him another chance. In less than two months, the kid's the number one kid in 400 kids. The brain didn't change. Only thing that changed, Baruch Hashem, is you gave the kid a little bit of attention. A little bit of attention, a little bit of interest, a little bit of care. And now, he cares. More than you. Now he wants to learn Gemara more than you. When we were talking, it was 12 o'clock at night for him. He's supposed to be sleeping. But he was too busy thinking about a Gemara in Masechet Bavakama. A little bit of attention all the time. A little bit. You spend a little bit of time doing some learning with your kid. Don't do their homework. The number one reason why kids become losers in life is because their parents do their homework. If you're going to do the kid's homework, take him out of school. And you go to school instead. Don't do their homework. It's not healthy for them to think that somebody is going to do their work. That's not how life works. You go into the real world, no one's going to do your work. When you fail, no one's going to tell you, oh, good job, you failed. No, you need to fail sometimes. Don't do the kid's homework. Because then he's going to get used to other people doing his stuff. She's going to get used to other people doing her stuff. And by the way, she's not learning a thing. He's not learning a thing when you're doing the homework. So yeah, the grade on the test says 100. And the GPA says 4.8. Somebody told me that even though there's only a four-point system in GPA, they're now up to 4.8 in GPAs. Meaning people are getting... Scores that are above perfect. The average GPA in college and universities in America today is the highest it's ever been in history. But yet the level of education that we have is lower than we ever have in history. How could it be? How could it be? This was reported. How could it be? This was a study. How could it be that the the grades are the best they've ever been? But... The failure ratio, this, this the actual success and what these people end up becoming in their life is the biggest failure in history. How could it be? This doesn't make any sense. If you pay the bill, they'll give you an A. You pay 50000 a year, they'll give you an A. Why does the kid have no problem with passing a class he didn't even work for? Because he's used to it. Because his parents have been doing his homework his whole life. Somebody's been doing it. Why does the kid have emuna problems when he's only 16 or 17 years old? Because his parents have been doing his homework. And he has no idea who Moshe Rabbeinu is. He has no idea that miracles are part of our day-to-day life as Jews. He has no idea that sacrifice is part of our day-to-day as Jews. He has no idea that Hashem 
commends you to fear him before you love him. He has no idea. Why? Because Ima has been doing his homework every day. Abutai, I've seen this with my own eyes. Many kids, the ones that their parents do their homework, end up becoming the biggest losers later on. Regardless of religion. You want to destroy your kid? Do his homework. You want to build him? Make him do himself. Even if it means he's going to fail. Even if it means he's going to get left back. Even if it means he's going to be left back twice. If he's getting left back twice because he keeps failing, that means it's the right decision. He's not qualified to be in that grade. If he's failing, that means it's the right decision. That means he should not pass because he doesn't know the information. Failure is a part of life. You need to fail in order to succeed. But if you really want him to succeed, spend some time with him. Spend some time with her, learning with her. Not just taking her to the mall to buy a new dress. Not just taking her out to lunch, making her feel like a lady. Spend some time learning with her about stuff that's going to actually help her in life. The dress is not going to help her more than once or twice in her life. The dinner is not going to help her more than satisfying her hunger for 15 minutes. But learning Torah, that could help them. Especially if you show interest. If Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi can show interest to study with five-year-olds, I think we can too. What do you do with the kid? Take him out of school. Take him to a different school. A school a school that gives participation trophies is not a school. It's a facility to make losers. They enable kids to become losers. That's all they do. Participation trophies is the biggest disaster in the education system in probably history. You're giving somebody a, a, a trophy for failing. Why should he ever succeed? Why should he ever work hard? The only thing you deserve if you fail is maybe a pat on the back because you got up after failure. Failure. Other than that, nothing. Failure is necessary, Rabotai. Am Israel needed to fail many, many times in order to become Am Israel. A tzaddik, Shlomo Melech says, falls seven times. It's necessary to fail in order to become a tzaddik. Necessary. Because the tzaddik is going to use those failures as ways to connect to Hashem even further meaning that you can use the failure for something good. It's not all bad. 
the types of people that Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi invested his time with, the Gemara Maserik Tubot, page 77b says, would constantly put his own health on the line. And the reason was, is because he would teach the people that have life-threatening diseases. He insisted to teach them, because he said that the Torah protects them. Because the Torah has a, has a rule. There's no such thing as a person losing as, as a result of doing a mitzvah. You can't lose in the end by doing a mitzvah. It's not possible. It's against nature. Just like it's not natural for you to jump and never fall, go back down because there's something gra- called gravity. Just like it's not natural for something to continue going up, it must go down at some point. It's not natural for a person to lose in the end for doing a mitzvah. So he would constantly put his life on the line and teach these people that have terminal diseases that were infectious. But also he would tell people the same type of principle in the Midrash Shira Shirim Rabbah He says the same principle applies when you're donating for Torah. When you're donating, donating to help Am Yisrael learn Torah, when you're donating to help Am Yisrael do tshuva, the Midrash and Shira Shirim says that Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says a person needs to look at his donations just like he looks at fingernails, which regardless of what happens in your life will continue to grow. No matter how much you cut your nails, no matter how many times you cut your nails, they're always going to grow back. He says, no matter how much money a person contributes financially to support Torah study, God will always pay him back. A person that wants to do the right thing and publicize Hashem's Torah, is never going to look at all the things he did. Oh, I donated for this kolel. Oh, I donated last month for this avrech. Oh, I donated last week for this, this. Oh, last year I did this. A tzaddik doesn't look at his past. A tzaddik looks at his present responsibilities. People need to do tshuva. I have money to make it happen. People need to learn Torah. I have money to make it happen. What about next month? What about next year? What about the next guy? When we get there, we'll worry about there. Now, there's an opportunity to help somebody do tshuva by donating XYZ. That's all you're responsible for. No one promised you next week. No one promised you next year. Hashem gave you an opportunity to donate today. Hashem gave you an opportunity to do a mitzvah today. Today you're responsible for it. Everything you did in the past, don't worry, you'll get paid for it. Everything that's in the future, we'll worry about it when we get there. Today is all we have to worry about. And one of the things that a person can do, people always ask, how do you build your emunah? 
the number one way to build your emunah is when it comes to money. Donate just enough to make it hurt. Donate just enough to make it hurt. Obviously, don't destroy yourself. Obviously, don't make yourself go homeless. You're not allowed. But if it's very easy for you to donate $100, it's not enough. If it's very easy for you to donate $1,000, it's not enough. Donate just enough where it like pinches a little bit. And then see God work. One person that has some serious emunah that I know, he also has constantly one of these people that's never satisfied with where he's at. It was a situation similar to what happened with me where I had to move in a very short period of time. And he had to move. The problem is that everything is unaffordable. Today, I don't know where I don't know where it's cheap anymore, but it seems like New York, California, Florida, Texas, and pretty much anywhere there's people, it's expensive. So people send me all the time, especially people that become religious, whether because they are converting or because they're doing tshuva. First thing you need to do, you need to move to a Jewish community. Problem is, no one can afford it, including the people that live there. People that live there, they're all borrowing money. No one has any money anymore. Everyone has eight jobs, no one has any money. So this guy had to move. He said, yeah, but I can't find a house. I said, what do you mean you can't find a house? No houses? No, there's plenty of houses. I said, okay, so what's the problem? He says, the problem is, the next house, the next house is, I think it was $1,500 or $1,200 more than the house he was living in. I said, okay, so no move. He goes, what do you mean move? Where am I getting the money for? I said, no, wait a minute, you don't, have, you don't make any money? You don't work? He goes, I work, not this much. I said, okay, so talk to your landlord. She talks to the landlord. The landlord says, no, you have to move. So he says, so he says what should I do? I said, you have to move. Or else the, you're going to make this landlord very upset. Is he Jewish? Yeah, he's Jewish. So it's a sin to make a Jew upset. He moved the next day. Or two days later, something like that. Why? He couldn't afford it. But he also couldn't afford to make a Jew upset. So he spent an extra $15,000 a year that he can't afford to make sure he doesn't make another Jew upset. What do you think? God's going to pay for it? I think He will. If you want your emunah muscles to work, you have to exercise them. You have to exercise them. If what you're doing is becoming easy, that means you have reached the next level. It's time to put some more weight on. But that also means that we have to worry about all of the other character traits that we have. 
all of the other things that we have. In order to be so worried about another person that you're willing to spend $15,000 not to make him upset, the first and foremost lesson that you can learn from Abiyah Shur ben Levi is you have to learn humility. In Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin, page 43, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says that the greatest trait of all is having humility to such an extent that when a person practices humility, it is greater than all of the korbanot that were ever brought to the Bet HaMikdash. One time, Someone told you something, and you didn't really like it so much. But you humbled yourself, said okay, and move forward. One time, you had the right answer, but it wasn't the right time. You humbled yourself, you moved on. One time, you had all the right in the world to be angry at this such and such person. But you know Hashem hates anger. So you humbled yourself and you moved on. Countless times Hashem gives us opportunities to humble ourselves and say things like, I'm sorry, or excuse me. And you do it once. The Chavruta of Eliyahu and Navi, the one who met the Mashiach, the one who met the Satan, the Malach HaMavet, who was scared of him. Rabbi Yashub and Levi says, that one time, that you practice this humility is more valuable than all of the korbanot that were brought to the Bet Mikdash. Meaning all of the prayers that you will ever have in your life. Because every time you pray, the Prophet says, every time you pray, it's like bringing a korban. It's like bringing a sacrifice to the Bet Mikdash. Since we cannot bring korbanot anymore, we can't bring sacrifice anymore, there's no Bet Mikdash, unfortunately. So the Prophet Hoshea says, Pray instead. You pray, it's like you brought a huge bull to the Bet HaMikdash. Even if you bring a bull three times a day for 70 years, $25,000 bull you brought every day for 70 years, it's not as valuable as practicing humility one time. Imagine practicing humility permanently in a lifetime. One of the most difficult places and times to practice humility is with our speech, how we talk. We speak freely. Because the world around us tells us if you let it get it out of your heart, it's going to make you feel better. In reality, if you're upset talking about it more times than not, it's going to make you feel worse. Now yes, there is a time and a place that you need to talk about things, but not to everybody. Not to anybody. It has to be to specific people. And it has to be at specific times. But a lot of the times, the biggest weapon we have of mass destruction is our mouth. 
causes us the most amount of damage. The first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed because of Avodah Zarah, Giloy Arayot, and Shfichud Damim. Idol worship. Sex crimes and murder. But 70 years later, Hashem built the Bet Mikdash again. Meaning that Am Yisrael did Shuvah. 70 years later, we did Shuvah, we got the Bet Mikdash back. Because if we didn't do tshuva, Hashem wouldn't have built the Bet HaMikdash. Second Bet HaMikdash was destroyed and Hashem hasn't built it for over 2,000 years. For what? What they call baseless hatred. Hating for no reason, hating for the wrong reason, hating more than justified, which the Chachamim explain in different ways. Some say it's hating because of Lashon Some say it's hating because of lack of rebuke. You see your friend sinning and you don't say anything. But most importantly, the common denominator among all of the Chachamim that discuss this baseless hatred, is that it's exercised with our mouth. We cannot control our speech. We say stupid things. We say the wrong things. And we have a very, very difficult time humbling ourselves when we make a mistake and saying, I'm sorry. Two thousand years. Two thousand years. Two thousand years we still haven't done tshuva for one thing. Murder, we did tshuva. Rape, we did tshuva. Chilul Shabbat, we did tshuva. Avodah Zarah, we did tshuva. All the things that we did in the first Bet HaMikdash, we did tshuva. Seven years later, Hashem built the Bet HaMikdash. But 2,000 years, we cannot fix our mouth. 2,000 years, we cannot fix our mouth. Imagine. Why? Why can't we fix a few words that come out of our mouth every day? Because it requires humility. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says in Gemara Maseret Megillah, page 18a, slander, saying bad things about anybody, regardless of whether they know Torah, a little bit or a lot of it, as long as they're a kosher Jew, Saying bad things about them is as if you have violated the entire five books of Moses. 
meaning you have just violated the entire Torah. Kal needless to say, if the person is a Mezakeh Rabim, if the person is a kosher Jew that knows Torah, if the person is somebody that cares about Hashem's children. More importantly, Rabbi Karim, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says that if saying one word was worth a gold coin, saying nothing in Shemaim, they'll give you two gold coins for that. Meaning, the secret to humility is being quiet. Be quiet. Unless you have divrei Torah to say, unless you have something good to say, be quiet. It's worth much more in Shemaim. Believe it or not, you look even smarter too. Who's the smartest guy in the room usually? Everyone points at the guy that never talks. Why? If he doesn't talk, he probably knows everything we're talking about. We're not even on his level. Who's the biggest fool? The guy that talks the most. Why? He showed us his ignorance with his, all the things that he talks about. If a person wants to achieve humility, he has to train, she has to train herself to minimize her speech. I know it's very difficult for women because Hashem already told us that out of 10 traits of speech, 10 level of speech that He gave to the entire world, 9 of them were given to the women and 1 to the men. The natural inclination of a woman is to talk a lot. Now if you talk divrei Torah, no problem. Talk about mitzvot, no problem. Talk nonsense, big problem. Very big problem. Rabbi Yashor ben Levi saw Eliyahu Navi one time and he said, when is the Mashiach going to come? And the Avi told him, go ask him. In the Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin, page 98, says this fantastic event that happened that we can learn an enormous amount from. Rabbi Yashur ben Levi met the prophet Elijah who was standing at the entrance of the cave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And Rabbi Yashur ben Levi asked him, will I enter the Olam Abba? Meaning, do I have a share of the world to come? Am I going to go to Olam Abba? Now I can tell you between me and you. If I was Rabbi Yashur ben Levi, I wouldn't waste this question. Why? I'm Rabbi Yashur ben Levi. If I don't have Olam Abba, who does? But that's why I'm not Rabbi Yashur ben Levi. Mm-hmm. He wasn't sure if he has Olam Abba. 
He speaks to Allah. He speaks to Eliyahu Navi. He speaks to Mashiach. He speaks to Hashem. He speaks to this. He speaks to all of them. But he's not really sure they're going to welcome him in Olam Abba. That's why he's Rabbi Yosho ben Levi. And that's why he's in Olam Abba. But the first question, he's giving us a hint. What should you worry about in this world? Should you worry about money? Should you worry about how big your house is? Should you worry about what kind of car you're going to get next week? Should you worry about what you did in here and what you did in there and what she thinks of you and what he says about you and what you're going to buy and what you're going to sell? What should you worry about in this world? First question. Am I at a point where the way I'm going, the direction I'm on, is that going to lead me to Olam Abba or not? That's what you should worry about. Not how much money, not who, what, when, and where. First question, am I going in the right direction? Is the business that I'm doing going to get me to Gan Eden? Is the relationship that I'm in going to get me to Gan Eden? Is the book that I'm reading and investing resources and time into going to get me to Gan Eden? Is the rabbi that I get advice from and listen to and learn from, is he going to help me go to Gan Eden or I'm going to be in Gainon with him? Where am I going with the decisions that I'm making? Many people are surprised at the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat that says when a person leaves this world and gets to the Beddin of Shemaim, the first question they ask him, did you do business? in a kosher way. They're surprised. They're like, what, they worry about business out there? There's no money. Why do they care about business? Why is it saying the Torah that Hashem cares about business? You'd be surprised. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 89. A. says, Shuv Makativa. What else is written in this Torah? Lotisa. You shall not take the name of Hashem in vain. The second commandment. Chachamim ask, what does this mean? What does this law don't use Hashem's name in vain? In practice, what is he making fun of Hashem's name? What are you writing Hashem's name as graffiti on the wall? What does it mean? Don't take Hashem's name in vain, the Chachamim ask. You shall not take Hashem's name in vain means, are there any business transactions among you that might lead to oaths that are taken in vain? Meaning, is your business one big lie? Are you promising but not delivering? Are you cheating people? If it is, it's written in the Torah, you're violating the second commandment. Jew, Gentile, animal, whatever you want to be, second commandment, you're violating it. To do business in a kosher way in today's world is almost impossible because almost everybody... And I'm only saying almost because I haven't met everybody. But everyone I've met is a cheater. 
Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi was very successful, had a lot of money, had a lot of power. You wanted to ask Eliyahu Navi, am I on the right path? I think I'm on the derech. But what I think means nothing. You are Eliyahu Navi, you know what's going on, what's going on in Shemaim. In Shemaim, what do they think of me? Am I going to Gan Eden or the other place? that you showed me last week. That that place, the hot place where they hang people upside down, that place, uh, am I going there or there? Will I enter the world to come? Elijah answered him, if the Lord wishes it. Meaning, if the Shekhinah decides you will or not, if Hashem decides you'll go into Olam Abba, he'd even give him a yes or no. He'd even give him a yes or no. Why? Today, yes, but you didn't die. Who knows what you're going to do tomorrow. 20 years you're making lectures and giving chizuk to the keilah and you're doing good and people are doing this and people are doing that and you build a beknesset and you build a yeshiva and you did this and you did that. Ooh, ah, ooh, you did everything great, right? But one day you decided to call a bunch of conservative people kdoshim and desecrated Hashem's name in public. Now the scales have changed. The scales have changed. Yes, you've done a lot of good. You built the yeshiva, and you built a school, and you went on Torah anytime, and you have shirim over there, and you went on this, and you have shirim over there. All of it is good. But now, you just desecrated Hashem's name in public. Why? Why is it desecration of Hashem's name in public to do such a thing? Because now, you just told every little 50-50 kid that's kind of thinking to maybe get off the derech, because he doesn't really like being orthodox anymore. He doesn't really like it so much. Why? It's much more fun to be chiloni. It's much more fun to go to the beach on Shabbat and go to Beknesset in his mind. It's much more fun to go out with girls before you're married. You don't have to wait to get married. It's much more fun to go bowling instead of going to Bet Midrash. So now you're calling all of these homosexuals the Mechale Shabbat, Kedoshim, ah, I want to be like them. I want to be like them. Every rabbi in the world is saying they're Kedoshim. I want to be like them. In fact, I'm them. The scale has changed. All the good you did is good. Ashrecha. But once you call the enemies of Hashem holy, Everything changes. Alvay we do tshuva. Alvay we do tshuva. To desecrate Hashem's name in public, Rabotai Karim, is serious business. If Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi was scared in his own status, how much so we should be scared? Amar le, emat atay Mashiach. Rabbi Yosho ben Levi continued to ask Elijah the prophet, 
When will the Mashiach come? Elijah answered him, go ask him. Meaning, go ask the Mashiach yourself. And where is he sitting? Where is he? Rabbi Yishor ben Levi says, unless well, <laughs> I checked, I didn't see him. Where is he? He says, Alpitcha de Kalta. He's sitting at the gate of the city. Umay Simane. What's his signs? Like, how could I tell it's him? What does he have? Like, some billboard? Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, what's happening? Is a bunch of Chabadniks around him? Where is this Mashiach? How do I know? I don't know he's Mashiach. He has a flag, yellow flag with some red cell. Where, where is this Mashiach? He has a flag, there's a car, there's a van with the, with the Ramkol saying Mashiach. Where, how do I know? He says his distinguishing feature is that he's singing, he's sitting among all the poor people that are full of disease. He's sitting among them. That's where the Mashiach is. He's not in the van. He's not breakdancing in the streets. He's among the people that no one else wants to be next to. One of the reasons, Rabotai, is the Gemara says that he, the Mashiach, will also be despised. Because the Emet, at the end of times, will be despised. All of them untie and tie their bandages at the same time. And he unties and ties his bandages one by one. Meaning they're all full of wounds. But they take off all of their bandages and then they replace them with something new. Because anyone, unfortunately, that has gone through the nightmare of having infections, it's very disgusting and horrible to have the infection nonetheless to have to deal with changing bandages and so on. So you have to change the bandages. If you don't, the infection gets worse. So, the Yawanavi says to him, all of the people over there, they take off all of the bandages and I replace them all at once. But the Mashiach, he does it one by one. The one in his hand takes off Replace it. Then over there, takes off, replaces it. Why? There's two questions here. Number one, why is he changing it one at a time? But a bigger question, why does he have all these wounds? Who beat him up? Who beat him up? What happened to the Mashiach? This specific Marah tells us the first answer. The reason why he takes off one bandage at a time is because in case Hashem decides for him to come and bring salvation to the world now. He does not want there to be a delay where he still has to put all the bandages back on. If he takes one at a time and Hashem makes the sound, the shofar from Shammai will, Mashiach, it's time. Now Mashiach, all he has to do is put one bandage on. I'm here. Aliyah, let's go. Game time. I'm preparing for 2,000 years. Let's go. Let's go. 
One bandage. But if he took off all the bandages, I need like 25 minutes. What do you mean 25 minutes? They've been waiting for 2,000 years. 25 more minutes. Are you out of your mind? It's against the Torah. You're fighting the Torah, Mashiach. So now, the Mashiach is concerned about not delaying, delaying the salvation, the Geulah, by even a minute. But the second question I answered some time ago, but to remind you, why does the Mashiach have all these wounds? The Sfarim HaKtoshim say, the holy books say, that every day, Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov come to the Mashiach and plead with him. Please continue. Please continue. Please continue. Continue what? Continue suffering for every single sin that every Jew makes. The Chachamim say one of the biggest embarrassments that a person cannot even imagine in this world is the embarrassment he will have when he sees Mashiach. Because as soon as he sees Mashiach, he will also be directed to see all of the wounds that he caused the Mashiach himself. Imagine the holiest of holy, the Kodesh Kodeshim, Moshe Rabbeinu, David Melech, Kodesh, arrives. Everyone's waiting. There's millions and millions of people. Billions of people watching. It's on big screens. It's in the sky. There's newscasters. There's choppers. There's everything in the world. Everyone is watching. And he's coming up to you. And you're little all you, thinking you're a tzaddik. You're thinking, I got the merit to see Mashiach. You're saying, oh, what? I'm like Rabbi Akim of the generation. Look at my payers go. And all you get to see is the Mashiach. Look at his hand and say, you see this deep flesh wound? That's from you. Remember when you looked at that girl and then you did that sin? That's you. It's in all the screens. It's being written in Shemaim. Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are watching. All of the greatest of the great are there. Hashem Yitbarach is there. All you can do to yourself is just sit there helplessly saying I'm sorry. What busha we're going to experience if we don't do tshuva.
Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said to the Mashiach, Shalom Alecha Rabbi Umori. Peace be upon you, my master and teacher. And the Mashiach said to Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, Shalom Alecha Bar Levi. Peace be upon you, son of Levi. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi asked him, When are you coming? When is the master coming? Amar Ayom, I'm coming today. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi immediately ran to Eliyahu ben Levi and Amar said to him, Look, look, I just spoke to him, I saw him. Eliyahu ben Levi said, So what did he say to you? He said, he first he told me, Shalom Aleicha Balivai. So the Yawa Navi says, oh, this is good. It's a good sign. Why? Why is it a good sign? What does it mean? What is it? <laughs> Just said Shalom, no? Because no, no. You have to understand the Mashiach talk. You have to, he doesn't talk like us. You have to understand Mashiach talk. Mashiach just gave you the answer to the question you asked me. What did you ask me? What did you ask me, Rabbi Yeshua? Do I have the share of the world to come? What did he tell you? He says, Shalom Alecha Balivai. He says, Peace be upon you, the son of Levi, meaning not only you have share of the world to come, but your father does too. Your father does too. But then as the day went, the Mashiach didn't come. And Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said to Eliyahu, he lied to me. He says he's going to come today. He says, no, you're not understanding. He said, today he's going to come, meaning the minute you do tshuva. Today, meaning I'll come as soon as possible. Which means, as soon as you do tshuva. As soon as Am Yisrael does tshuva. That's when I'll come. That's when I'll come. The Rambam writes, All of the prophets have promised, The Mashiach will come and bring us salvation. And Am Yisrael will do tshuva. Those that will see Mashiach will do tshuva. But there is a machloket. There's a debate. There's a problem. What is the problem? There's a predestined time. There's a predestined time of when Mashiach needs to come. So there was a debate between Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer of how is Mashiach going to come? Is he going to come on his time? Or is he going to come not on his time? In the Gemara in Maseret Sanhedrin in the previous pages 98a says there's going to have to be certain things that happen before Mashiach comes. Certain conditions. 
One of the things that it says, En ben David ba, Ela, Bedor shekulo zakai, O kulo chayav. The Mashiach, the son of David, is not coming unless the generation is full of righteous people or full of wicked. Chamim say, this cannot be. It's not possible for everyone to be righteous. There's always going to be one or two Esavs out there. And it's also not possible for everybody to be wicked. There's always going to be a couple of Yaakovs here and there. The Ba'alea Musa explained, no, we're not referring to everyone being tzaddikim, and we're not referring to everybody being reshaim. Is that at the end of days, Hashem is going to clean the generation just like when the Chachamim would clean silver in order to take out tin. Meaning that they would take to take out tin. It's difficult work, it's hard labor, it's a lot of burning, a lot of fire. Hashem is going to bring a lot of fire to the world, a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems. Why? He wants to see who is the precious stone, who is the silver, who is going to stand strong with him and who's going to desecrate his name? Because there's no more middle ground when Mashiach comes. It's either you're a tzaddik or you're a rasha. There's no more middle. All of us have to make a choice. Now a lot of us have a lot of yetzerah. Yetzerah of money. Yetzerah of women. Yetzerah of attention. Yetzerah of kavod. Yetzerah of a lot of different things. I said on Sunday, for all of the fools that are trying to compare the conservative shul to the Holocaust, there's no comparison. Because even if you want to say that the people that died during the Holocaust in a massacre, vicious way, and you want to be a psak and say that all of them were kedoshim, you have something to rely on. You have something to rely on. But you don't have anything to rely on for Pittsburgh. Why? Because you can have the Jew that came into the Holocaust intermarried. The Jew that came into the Holocaust a Christian, a Catholic. The Jew that came into the Holocaust to the, to the Auschwitz. Mechalel Shabbat. He came into the Holocaust. He came into the Auschwitz over there to the concentration camp. Mechalel Shabbat. But as soon as he arrived and they took all of his Yetzirah, they took away all of his money, all of his kavod, all of the things that were distracting him and blinding him from Hashemit Barach, he became a Jew. He became a Jew again. There was no more violating Shabbat. There was no more eating on Yom Kippur. There's no being intermarried. You have something to rely on. You can say he was a Kadosh when he died in a massive, brutal way. Because he suffered for days, years, who knows? A suffering that's unknown to us. Baruch Hashem. You have something to rely on. But if somebody that sinned his whole life and died while sinning, you can't call him the same thing. You cannot call him the same thing. Rabotai Karim, there's a lot of Yetzirah that's blinding all of us, whether it be money or women or so on. 
And the same Gemara says, these are the things that Hashem is going to take away from us. And it gives different things that are going to happen before Mashiach comes. People like to ask the question, when is Mashiach coming? Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi in his debate with Rabbi Eliezer are going to tell us exactly when. First and foremost, you should know, if there is a lot of problems in the world, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Second thing is, even the promise that was made to the Torah scholars, that as a result of them learning Torah, they'll enjoy peace. This will no longer be there. That promise will not be fulfilled across the board at the time of Mashiach. Meaning there will be so many problems that even the people that are fulfilling the Torah, even the people that are teaching Torah, even the people that are gdolei adol, giants, the peace that was promised to them for their learning Torah will have to wait until after Mashiach. Rabbi Chama Hanina says, the son of David, the Mashiach, will not come until the petty government has ceased from Israel, until the Knesset, full of kofrim, full of heretics, running east, the land of Israel right now, until it's destroyed, until it's gone. Why? Because one of the things that's going to happen at the time of Mashiach is that the entire government, the entire leadership will be considered minim, meaning people that lead people astray, away from Hashem. Until this is destroyed, until this is gone, Mashiach is not going to come. But then you're going to say, okay, so all we got to do is go to war. No, my friend. It has nothing to do with war. War starts at home. War starts with the person you see in the mirror. Why? Because then Zairi says, in the name of Rabbi Hanina, there's another condition. En ben David ba atshe yichlug Israel. The son of David, the Mashiach, will not come until the arrogant are eliminated from Israel. Until all of these people that haven't worked on their midot for a second, until all of these people that call themselves the great pride, until all of these people that want to show off their money, their looks, their all the other stuff they have, until they either do tshuva or, and become humble, or they're gone from the world. Mashiach can't come. But most relevant, Rabotai Karim, is what we read also on Sunday. Amar Rabbi Simlai, Mishum Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Shimon. En ben David ba at sheikhlu kol shoftim veshotrim Yisrael. The son of David, the Mashiach, will not come until the judges and officers cease from Yisrael. Cease from Israel, all of these people that are making new laws, new halachot in the name of nobody, in the name of somebody. All of these lies that are being taught to the world have to stop. All this chilul Hashem has to stop. Now what about the people that are motivated by money? What about the people that are worried about building the next yeshiva or the next uh, kolel? And they need to lie a little bit in order to get the Mechalel Shabbat to donate a million dollars. 
Well, Shmuel says, En ben David ba, Ad sheyu kol ha-shearim, Kulan shekulim. Shmuel says, The verse in Tehilim, 119-165, teaches us, The Mashiach will not come until the prices of all commodities are equal. Meaning, there's a financial crisis where everything becomes worthless. No stock market, no housing, no Bitcoin, no Schmidtcoin, no potatoes, no tomatoes. Everything is worthless. That IRA you're trying to save him for? That retirement plan? You're only trying to retire before Mashiach comes because if he comes, that retirement client might as well be dead. You're better off giving some tzedakah with that money or doing something useful like buying some sifre Torah. But what about if the people are not ready? The same Gemara continues in another place and says, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, if the Jews are deserving, I will hasten them. If they're not deserving, then the redemption will come at its time. Zachu achishena, lo zachu be'eta. The debate between him and Rabbi Eliezer is finalized with Rabbi Yeshua ben, Le- ben Levi putting up psak, saying, if they do tshuva, good. Mashiach will come at a nice time, will be introduced by Eliyahu Navi three days before, and all will be wonderful. If not, Hashem will send Haman, and will force him to do tshuva. Hashem will send a leader as evil as Aman, the Gemara says, and I'll force him to do tshuva. When the Mashiach told Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, I'm going to come today, is because he says, you can actually do tshuva today. All of us can do tshuva today. It starts with, our own midot, our own character traits. This is what Hashem has been wanting us to do for the last 2,000 years. How do I know? What am I, prophet? Am I the son of a prophet? No! He wrote it in his book. I checked it, and I'm going to read it to you. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2 Verse 30 says, Lama tarivu elai kulchem, I'm sorry, Leshavi keti et benechem, musar lo lakahu. Hashem says, Tell Am Yisrael, he tells Jeremiah, In vain I strike your children, for they did not accept rebuke. He says, I destroyed the Bet Mikdash. I killed millions and millions of people all in vain. It's a waste to kill all these people, Hashem says. It's a waste. Why? Because even after I killed them, punished them, this, that, they still don't want to learn Musar. 
Because the only thing I keep telling them, do tshuva, hai do tshuva, learn musar. They still don't want to do it. So the whole thing is in vain. 2,000 years we're waiting for somebody to teach musar. 2,000 years Hashem is waiting for us to do tshuva. Work on ourselves, work on our midot. All of the things that we concentrate on, the material, the prophet Isaiah says, The prophet Isaiah in chapter 2, verse 20, says on that day, meaning the day Mashiach arrives, Men will throw away his false gods of silver and false gods of gold. All the money, all the stock portfolios, all the Bitcoin, all the cars, all the houses, all the garbage we consume our life with. Why? Which made him prostrate himself. All the stuff he worshipped his whole life and wasted his life, he's going to throw it to the bats, into the caves. Why? Because it's all going to become worthless. The only thing we're going to have at that time of Mashiach is whatever mitzvot we fulfilled. If you haven't done tshuva at that time, money's not going to help you. This is why Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, "Bekol yom v'yom bat kol yotzet me'achorev u'machrezet ve'omeret oy lahem labuyot me'elbona shel Torah." Every day a heavenly voice emanates from Mount Sinai, from Mount Chorev, proclaiming and saying, Woe to them, the people, because of their insult to the Torah, because of their chilul Hashem. Woe to them. The Ruach Haim on Masachat Shabbat Page 89 says that why is it called Mount Chorev? Why is it called a mountain of destruction? It's because Am Yisrael is supposed to learn that originally Hashem offered the Torah to all of the nations. He offered the Torah to all of the nations but all of the nations rejected it. Why they reject it? If you look at the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara, page 2b, it says that the nations said to Hashem, listen, if we can't steal and we can't murder, we can't accept the Torah. Why are they? They can't stop stealing. Why are they? They can't stop killing. What's, the, what's their problem? Why, why do they have to steal? Why do they have to kill? Why are they so glued to it? The Chachamim explains, the Ruach Haim explains, it's not that they're glued or not glued. You're not understanding. That's their business. They're saying to Hashem, no, it's not necessarily that we don't want to stop killing and we don't want to stop murdering. It's that we're too busy working we don't have time to learn Torah. We don't have time to learn Torah. I can't come at 9 o'clock at night. I'm working. 
I can't learn Torah. I'm, I'm working. I'm working. I'm working. I'm always working. There's no time to learn Torah. Achamim say this is why it's called Mount Choriv. Because the Goim that rejected the Torah ultimately will be destroyed for rejecting the Torah. But so will the Jews that reject the Torah. They rejected the Torah because they were too busy working. They rejected the Torah because they were too busy because they were working. Same price. Same thing. Now how come there's this sound that we don't hear? The Baal Shem Tov says this sound from Mount Sinai comes to each person at his level. Wherever you are, it comes to you at your level. Meaning, each one of us has an inner voice that tells him, you know, you really should be more modest. You know, the Rebbe said that you're supposed to cover your head with a mitpachat. You really should listen to him. You know, you should stop working on Shabbat. You're not even making money anyway. You know, you should start keeping Shabbat. It's a vacation every week. You know, you should start coming to the shoe and stop watching on the internet. You're only 20 minutes away. You know, you should do this. We all have that little inner voice. Where's the inner voice coming from? Mount Sinai. The Baal Shem Tov says, it comes from Mount Sinai. It's telling you, listen, 3,300 years ago, you were there. You accepted the entire Torah and you're screwing up. You're doing something no good. You better do tshuva. Mashiach's coming. Mashiach's coming. We have to do tshuva, Rabotai. Each and every single one of us hears this voice. It's inside us. We can't continue making excuses for the rents of our lives. But unfortunately, the Baal Shem Tov continues and he says to us, all of us have this voice inside us. The wise person opens up his heart to this heavenly call and does tshuva and returns to God. But the spiritually callous person, the lazy person, the wicked person, the faker, that guy, he's oblivious. He just says, no, that's just some noise. Nah, that's just for other people. It's not for me. I'm too busy making money. I'm too busy going out with girls. I'm too busy making sins. It's not for me, this stuff. I'll do it later when I get married and have kids and I'm 99 years old. At hospice. The Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh says, that person, he hears the voice. Everyone hears the voice. But he just ignores it. All of us hear this voice. All of us have the sound of the batkol rebuking us constantly. All I do is remind you of things you already know. That's it. I'm just trying to remind you of what the inner voice has been telling you for 20, 30, 40 years. That's it. It 
time we listen. We have to do something about it. Stop faking ourselves out, pretending. There's work to do. Every one of us has an inner voice that's telling you to do something. Do it already. You can't do all of it, do part of it. The key, Rabotai, is to start paying attention. For 2,000 years, we've been hearing a voice. Sinat Chinam, Sinat Chinam. Five times a year we hear about Sinat Chinam. Bet HaMikdash is not built because of Sinat Chinam. Bet HaMikdash is not built because of Lashon Hara. Bet HaMikdash is not built because of this, because of that. It's not because of Lashon Hara. It's not because of Abu Dazara. You know why it is? It's because we're not listening. That's why. Bet HaMikdash is not being built because we're not listening to the rebuke. We're not listening to the emit. Even when the emet punches us in the face, we're not listening. We're listening to people that pretend to love us. Oh no, I love my keilah. I love them. I'm not going to tell them, Mechalel Shabbat, Mot Yumat. So we're going to finish with this. Someone expl- asked me this question. But whether our delivery of how we say things, being passionate, a little bit in your face, and somewhat scary at times. If that's really the best approach, maybe I should be more patient. Maybe I should be like the Chabadnik that tells everybody he loves him. Maybe I should be like the breast liver and start dancing with him in the middle of the streets, like when I was uh, 17. Maybe I should be like the local uh, conservative guy and invite him uh, and go to his homosexual party. Maybe I should be that. No. Let me explain to you something. No one loves the sinners more than the rebuker. No one loves the chiloni, the conservative, the reform, the complete atheist. More than the rebuker. No one. Not even his family. You know why? Because while everybody else enables him to continue being a desecrator of Hashem's name, being a Mechalel Shabbat, being a idol worshiper, by saying he's a tzaddik, he's kadosh, he's the best, he has a good heart. Hashem understands you. You're the best. And letting him continue living a life of sin that he will have to pay for for eternity in a very, very hot fire that will never end. The rebuker that he and all of his friends hate with a passion is his only hope to do tshuva. The rebuker is the only one that reminds him, hey buddy, you have to stop violating Shabbat. Or else you're going to go to Gainom. Trust me, you don't want to go there. Hey, you're not allowed to be a homosexual. Even if you have those feelings, keep them deep down inside till they go away. 
Lots of people have feelings. Doesn't mean you have to practice them. We're not animals. We have to work on ourselves. And the only ones that care enough to remind us are the people that rebuke us. If there are two people that have a disease that's terminal, and the doctor tells the first one that he has only one year to live, that person is going to cry at first from the pain of realizing that his whole life is flashing before him and he only has 12 months before he says goodbye to everyone. What will he do with this 12 months? What can he do? The doctor, being a very passionate and compassionate person, starts crying with him and hugs him and tells him, you know, I really love you. You're my best patient. I really, really care about you. I'm sorry to be a bearer of bad news. I really am. I really was hoping you'd be my patient for another 20 years. After the patient leaves, the doctor cries for another 5 or 10 minutes. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to give people bad news anymore. Little does he know his next patient arrives with the same terminal disease and only one year to live. And he says, you know what? My buddy, I told my buddy, I love him. He's been coming to my office for 20 years. We go to shul together. We hang out together. Our kids are this, are that. I upset him. I, I can't believe it. You know what? I'm not going to do it again. So he tells the next patient, you're good. What? I'm good? Everything's good? What about this uh, thing going out of my arm? No, it's nothing. It's just, it's callous. It's nothing. It's, it's, it's good. It's, a, it's an ingrown hair. It's an ingrown hair. It's not. It's going to go away. It's going to go away in time. Oh, really? My, my foot's falling off. Everything is okay. No, no. That just happens with age. It happens with age. Starts making up reasons. Starts making halachot. No, no, you're kadosh. You're perfect. Don't worry. You're good as you are. Hashem loves you as you are. Stay. Don't change a thing. Stay at Tinok Shanishba. The guy goes home and he's happy. He hugs his wife. He hugs his kids. Everything is good. See, you're all worried for nothing. And he goes back to his life. A year follows and the family of both dead people see the doctor. One family thanks him while the other one calls the cops and files a lawsuit against him. The one that files a lawsuit against him says to him, we can't believe you lied to us. We can't believe you told him that it was just nothing. It was not a big deal. That Hashem didn't really care and He loved him as He is. We can't believe you lied to Him. He says, yeah, but I didn't want to hurt Him. I didn't want Him to cry like my other friend. He says, yes, but if He cried at first, He would have done something about it. 
He would have cried at first that now he has to change his life. Now he has to get a divorce because he's intermarried. Now he has to quit his job because he works on Shabbat. Now he has to change his life and he has to watch his mouth. Now he has to change himself because he has to watch his midot. Now he has to change his clothes because he has to put clothes on. He would have changed, and it would have hurt, it would have been expensive. But it was over at some point. And he would have gotten used to it. And maybe even liked it. But you didn't even give him the chance. You told him nothing is wrong. So he just went about his life. And he continued going to work. And he worked overtime. Because you wanted to save for some vacation. That he's never going to see anyway because he died. And he never spent any time with his family. He never spent any time doing tshuva. And he's never spent any time appreciating anything. Because he was so busy working. He was so busy living the false life he was living. Because he was convinced, like all of us, that he has at least another 80 years to go. So the last year that he had, you just stole it from him. Which is the equivalent of you stole everything from him. You took all he had. You took all he had left. Your friend that cried, yeah, he cried at first. But at least his last year after he made the changes, he didn't go back to work anymore. Because he knew he doesn't have much time left. So he used the time he had left doing things that are useful. Doing tshuva, learning Torah, spending with family, doing things that are useful to the world. It hurt to do tshuva at first, because it made an adjustment. But I bet you that family loves you now. Because now he's in Gan Eden. While the one you didn't tell the truth to, he's in Gehenom. And he's not coming out. No one loves the secular, the reform, the conservative, and the atheist. More than the rebuker. No one. Because he's the only one that's happily going to tell you the truth even though he knows you're going to punch him in the face. Even though he knows you're going to not donate. Even though he knows it's going to hurt him, actually. Financially. Even though he knows it's going to hurt him emotionally. When you make right things against him and his family and everything is about. He knows you're going to do it. But he loves you just enough to tell you the truth. Because eventually, we're all going to meet somewhere. And hopefully, we're both in the same place. Any questions? Bezat Hashem, tomorrow night, we have another very exciting shiul to continue this Mishnah of what does it mean to be our sick but Torah. To occupy yourself with Torah. These psukim that we have in the Torah that tell us that we have to do tshuva. That Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi is teaching us here, the one who saw all the things we could only imagine. He's going to give us some guidance of occupying ourselves with Torah, occupying ourselves with tshuva. What does it mean? How do we do it? Tomorrow we'll continue. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.